Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. bring up uh, Richard Villa. He's the chair of our finance committee and uh, some good things going on here and we wanted to bring you into the loop. Uh, Things developed uh, rather quickly over the last few weeks and so uh, with that announcement, Richard Villa. Thank you. Let's see if you do that at the end. Um, So obviously introduced me as head of the finance committee and you're all thinking, well, he's just going to ask for money. And that's not always true. It's true in this case, but it's not always true. Um, So Dave talked about an opportunity, and the opportunity is for us to buy our office building that we currently lease. Um, And just to give you a little history, about 10 years ago, the leadership of the church decided we needed more ministry space here on our campus. And I use the term campus very loosely in the small facilities that we have here. But... um, At the time, we had offices in the Children's Center next door. We had offices in the next two buildings next door to this direction. And we needed to expand to allow for preschool and children to use, but also importantly, to allow for overflow into the building next door, especially during this service. There's always overflow that happens in that building next door. We have junior high and high school ministries that are utilizing the buildings on the other side. So what we did was we went out and looked for office space, and we found it over on Honolulu, just on the other side of Rosemont. And we've been leasing that for about nine years now. Um, And so uh, we've been in conversations with the owners of the building ever since we started leasing, to tell you the truth, um, to try and uh, figure out how we could do, how we could acquire the building. And they kept putting us off and putting us off. And ultimately, they've ultimately said, you know, when our heirs take over the building, that's when, you know, you'll have the opportunity to do that. And that's come up just recently. The heirs have now taken over the building and they've honored their parents' uh, wishes and they came to us about purchasing it. And so a couple of uh, reasons as to why we've been wanting to purchase it. Uh, One is, again, the reason is we're moving off the uh, offices in order to provide more ministry space. But so this obviously stabilizes that decision. The fact that we're leasing it uh, is always temporary. You don't know when you'll be kicked out. They were going to sell the building. It wasn't as though they were just giving us opportunity. If we wanted to, we could do it, and then otherwise we'd just continue leasing from them. No, they wanted to sell the building. And so uh, anything could have happened post their sale, uh, and that new owners could have come in and said, we're going to build condos, you guys are out. And so we'd have to find new space because we can't move back. The decision we made was the right decision, and it's being utilized otherwise. Um, the other reason is that to try and substitute what we're paying in lease costs. When we started leasing the building nine years ago, uh, we were paying about $72,000 annually to lease the building. Um, and now that's increased to $87,000. And so to the extent that we, you know, you figure that that's the possibility of more increases coming down the road. Uh, we calculate that to the extent we buy it and uh, the mortgage is reasonable in what we do, that we'd actually be paying slightly less annually in mortgage payments than we currently are in lease payments, and there would be building equity in the building itself. So very good reasons as to why we want to acquire the building. Uh, So the board, as Dave said, this moved very quickly. The board met last week, um, and after quite a bit of discussion and questions and answers, uh, the board, uh, somewhat nervously, which is always good, unanimously voted to go ahead and acquire the building and to take on the mortgage. Um, So 
now we're in the, in the part of where everybody can participate. And we really do want everybody to participate. We don't want this to be some people that really do this and not everyone. We really want it to be across the board. And that's raising money. And we need to raise money for the purpose of, it's twofold. One, to raise for the down payment that we have to make, which is $550,000 um, for the mortgage. And then two, there's about $100,000 in deferred maintenance that we have to do to the building. Um, and the 100,000 deferred maintenance was taken off of the purchase price when we negotiated, so we, had, we aren't paying twice for that. We're, we're, we, we negotiated a price that did two things, took off uh, the, the uh, deferred maintenance from the purchase price, but it also took off any commission payments because there was no brokers involved, even though we utilized a broker, somebody from the congregation, to, to go through the process and negotiate for us all of those commissions came off of the purchase price as well. So we believe the purchase price to be very reasonable, um, but now we need to actually raise some money. Um, again, 550 for the mortgage and $100,000 for the deferred maintenance. Um, it, just want to be clear in this and that we're, uh, we're asking for commitments from the, from the congregation. Really, we're just asking for money to be given. Typical in a capital campaign is that we'd ask you to make a commitment that you're going to meet over a three or five year period. That's not what we're asking for today. What we're asking for is we have a close on the building at the end of March, and so we need to raise this money here by mid-February. So we're asking you all to make a decision about how you might be able to participate and actually give those dollars, whatever you decide to do, to give those dollars to the church and to give those by February 9th. Uh, as part of the meeting with the board, um, as, as sort of a, you know, we're all nervous about this, but we need to also make sure the congregation understands that we are committed to this as well, is that the board is committed and is going to give 120, about $125,000 to the amounts that we're trying to raise. So those 20 people um, that are really your peers, they very, very much represent you in, in, in the board, uh, have decided on the dollar amounts they're going to give, and they're going, and it amounts to about 125,000. So, we need to raise about 425,000 more for the down payment, and about 100,000 for the deferred maintenance. Um, we, we know that, that uh, and this was very true in the way that the board gave its money. That there's going to be a lot of divergence between what people can give. Some people can give only small amounts because that's where they are in the current time, and some people can give very large amounts, and because of where they are. And we really want you to contemplate that pray about it and we're giving you that's why we want to make sure that we're not asking you we're not going to shake you down as you leave the you know <laughs> church today but we'll shake you down very quickly though so over the next three weeks we want you to decide pray about contemplate to give and then make that gift at by the by february 9th um, there's a few ways you can do that you can write a check but make sure you notate office building on the on the check you can give online uh, the more information will come about that. And then uh, as a way that, you know, uh, the markets have appreciated out there quite a bit. And, uh, and one of the things the IRS allows you to do is to give appreciated assets. And that's really beneficial for uh, the reason that you can take a tax donation for the fair value of what you donate, but you don't have to actually pay taxes between what you paid for and the growth of it. Consult your tax advisor on that. <laughs> I don't want anybody suing me later, you know, just... That's what you should do. Uh, if you, need, you have any questions between now and when, you, when February 9th comes around, you can reach out to me. I have a church email. It's richard.via at montrosechurch.org. Uh, or I'll be out in the patio if you have any questions right now. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
All right. Well, we uh, just uh, are in that phase of uh, growth in the life of the church. And wouldn't it be nice if it all just sort of, you know, you were able to spread it all out? You know, and he was saying there's capital campaign, and usually you pay that out. We're going to do that, too, eventually, but that's not happening now. That's because maybe you know we're also going to remodel this building. At least we're working with L.A. County on that. It's only been a six-year process, so uh, we'll see what happens with all of that. But would you be prayerful? Um, would you be prayerful? Um, it's a turning point in the, in the story of our church, and there have been a lot of them over the years. Uh, you know, the building we sit in was uh, purchased and driven out on a truck, and uh, church people met week after week and built this building themselves. Now, in the state of California, you can't really do that anymore. <laughs> uh, but I, I think to just be reminded, that was a turn, 1964, a turning point. The building next door. People mortgaged their homes. They, they lived very sacrificially, and it was a turning point in the very existence of the church. And this is another season like that. And the office building is one of those pieces. The remodel of this building is one of those pieces. So just be prayerful. Uh, these are opportunities for us to engage. And we're thinking today about empathy and, you know, how we relate to others. And certainly ministry and functionality has something to do with all of that. I was at an event uh, in the summer, and I, I've been privileged to be a part of this event. I'm not sure how I got invited, but... Uh, I, uh, it's been an ongoing thing. It happens every summer. It's a symposium. It takes place at Point Loma Nazarene University, and it's a, it's a bunch of smart people in a room talking and me, and then we, we sort of, you know, uh, and I've always thought ministry moves slowly, but it turns out ministry is lightning fast compared to academia. I mean, it's, a, it's really mind-boggling. You know, we sit in a room, we talk about wonderful things, and then at the end, you know, there's always a session about, and now what? And here's so far what we've decided in two years. Let's meet again next summer and talk about it. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, but this last time we were in the middle of, uh, you know, a presentation and somebody used this phrase and I knew immediately that I liked it, but I didn't know. It was, and it's embarrassing when you're in a room of smart people and you're having to look up vocabulary on your phone. <laughs> but they use this expression, metacognitive thinking metacognitive virtues and I thought well that's a that's a good word I like that I don't know exactly what it means but I'm going to use it somewhere so I thought I better figure it out so here's what metacognitive means it's a higher order thinking that enables understanding analysis and control of one's cognitive processes especially when engaged in learning so what that really means is metacognitive thinking is the kind of thinking that reorders your thinking you get that it's a higher order thinking that organizes the way you think into new categories, metacognitive. So most of us live at the cognitive level. In fact, if any given time, and this is helpful, we're told by psychologists and you know, science that if you just keep track of some things, it can change your behavior. So for example, if you just write down what you eat, it can cause you to eat better. Or in my case, it can depress you really badly. <laughs> But if you just wrote down what you think about, what your cognitive process is, that would be enlightening for you. Most of the time, I think about this, 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 and this. Wow. I'm not sure that's how I want to spend my life. <laughs> and even in asking this question, you've entered into metacognitive thinking. You are thinking about your thinking. And I asked you last week, what do you think about your thinking? We were talking about mindfulness. And so it turns out that when you kind of break it all down, there are two metacognitive virtues or values in which we engage. And the first one is mindfulness. And we've practiced it this week. We talked about it last week. 
creating space that allows you not to analyze, but simply experience, experience your thoughts, experiencing your feelings, creating space in which you're honest about what's happening to you, but you're also standing back and letting it happen. You're also becoming aware of what's happening. We, we say this space creates a, 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 a place where we can emerge from our subjectivity, where we can get out from under our perspective. I don't know about you, but I see everything through my own perspective. And I can't really see much else. Mindfulness creates space in which we step back from that and we simply recognize this is how I think. This is me thinking about how I think and creating space, mindfulness, a gap between what that is. And in in our tradition, then we say, and we invite the Holy Spirit then into that space to inform us and lead us and speak to us and guide us. And and so we, we are in this space then in which the Holy Spirit can begin to reorder our thinking. So mindfulness is is a metacognitive value. The second one is empathy. It is being able to feel what the people around us are feeling, being able to understand what they're going through. Now, Now, that's a scientific explanation, and if you follow the scientific model, then you'll say, okay, based on these metacognitive virtues, if we practice mindfulness and empathy, then we are able to engage the prosocial virtues generosity, kindness, you know, pro-social virtues that allow us to interact with one another. And I think that's fascinating because what did Jesus tell us? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is mindfulness. And love your neighbor as yourself. On these two things hang all the law and the prophets. This is mindfulness and empathy from a biblical perspective. What psychology is now sort of coming on board and starting to understand about how human beings work Jesus was teaching it a long time ago. And you and I are invited to practice these metacognitive virtues. It brings a whole new understanding to Paul looking at his crowd, writing a letter and saying, Therefore, in view of God's mercies, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable act of spiritual worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed By the renewing of your mind, so you can prove what God's will is, is good and pleasing and perfect will. And then as you begin to travel through now, the next piece of the argument, which we're going to read in a moment, you get down to verse 15, and what does he say? Rejoice with those who rejoice, and mourn with those who mourn. This whole relational idea of how our minds, and I don't know about you, but I grew up thinking, you know, don't be conformed, have your mind renewed. I just kept waiting for God to renew my mind. Anybody else? This is my favorite prayer. Fix me. (laughs) Amen? Fix me. And I believe the Holy Spirit can. I believe in a moment the Holy Spirit can reprogram my thinking. But I also believe he calls us to discipleship, which is entering into the disciplines of our faith. And practicing mindfulness and practicing empathy is a skill set that we're invited to learn and to understand Miriam Wester defines empathy this way. I love this. This is great. The act, everybody doing okay, by the way? Yeah. All right. I, I know when somebody comes up and talks about money in the middle of church, it puts a damper on the service. I don't know why. I mean, we don't usually do that. I've been here 31 years. I can count on one hand the number of Sundays we've talked about money in any way. So get over it. I'm just kidding. 
I'm just kidding. By the way, you are going to get a letter tomorrow that gives you much more details. There'll be a self-addressed stamped envelope inside. No, not really. It's actually an email. We're not wasting stamps. Miriam Westford says, the action of understanding, being aware of, being sensitive to, and vicariously experiencing the feelings, thoughts, and experiences of another, either the past or the present, without having the feelings, thoughts, and experience fully communicated in an objectively explicit manner. In other words, it's about being able to feel the feelings and go through the experience of another person, even though they didn't actually tell you what's happening to them. That's what empathy is. Empathy is being able to experience. And listen, if you can't practice mindfulness, then it's very difficult to practice empathy. If there's no space, if all of our thinking is cognitive thinking, where we're analyzing, problem solving, you know, figuring out, we're just in our thoughts. If we don't ever step away from that, how will we ever create space in which we understand what is happening to it? And imagine that you and I have this incredible ability, that there is actually a gift, there is actually a skill called empathy, that if we are attentive in the process, we can understand the feelings and experiences of another person, their perspective, even without them explicitly telling us what is happening to them. That's incredible. That's amazing. I would think that empathy is in a great state of atrophy in our culture and in our world. I, I, I would think that very few people really are good at empathy anymore because we are so consumed with our own thoughts and our own... Pro it takes so much mental... I'll just speak for myself. It takes so much of my mental energy to maintain life that I sometimes wonder, do I really practice mindfulness in a way that God... If God wanted to speak to me, if he had something really important to tell me, would I even be able to hear him? You know, and am I really connecting with the people around me, rejoicing with those who rejoice, mourning with those who mourn, connecting, listening? This practice of empathy matters. Alfred Adler says, empathy is seeing with the eyes of another, listening with the ears of another, and feeling with the heart of another. Mamet Oz, the opposite of anger is not calmness, it's empathy. I don't want that to go by too fast. The opposite of anger is not calmness. It's empathy. Why are we so angry as a culture? Because we don't practice empathy. We, we really don't project it. We really feel like there are right people and wrong people. There are right perspectives and wrong perspectives. We think what we think because we believe we're right. Now, where is the room for people who don't think what we think? Empathy is the practice that says the opposite of anger. It's not calmness. It's empathy. It's, it's trying to see the ability to see and understand things from a different perspective than our own. Maya Angelou writes, I think we all have empathy. We may not have the courage to display it. That's a, that would be an interesting study, wouldn't it? Just if, as a first step on the way to empathy, if you just stopped and said, how many times am I really feeling the feelings and experiencing something, but I don't really want to engage that? I'd rather run over it. I'd rather be out front of it. I'd rather not admit it. I don't want to see what I see. I don't want to understand what I want to understand. I have an agenda. There's a lot that has to get done. I don't have time for that. I'm just going to keep pushing forward instead of sitting down in the mindfulness and waiting. So we're invited into this place in which we are allowed to reorder our thinking. First Peter 3.8, finally, Paul sort of expanding, finally, all of you be like-minded, 
Be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, and be humble. Galatians 6, 2, and 3. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something, when they are not, they deceive themselves. This is Paul just articulating, when we put ourselves in our own existence and the perpetuation of our own lives in the very center of everything, it's very difficult for us to love God and love one another. It's a full-time job taking care of ourselves. Amen? It takes all my energy to navigate me. I came across an article uh, written by Melody Wilding, and it's written uh, on the website, Inc.com. It's a business website, and I always like when these things, you know, sort of bleed over. So she's writing an article about business leaders who practice empathy. And so she, she gives us the seven habits of highly empathetic people. And they're all business-oriented, and I just took them from her, so I didn't rewrite them for you. I think you can make the leap to application, can't you? All right, good. Here we go. She writes, empathy is defined as the ability to detect others' emotions and understand their perspective. When people feel accepted and validated, it builds trust. It's what you need to comfort a grieving coworker, get people on board with your ideas, or diffuse tension with your boss. Humans are social beings, and everyone has the capacity to develop empathy. It's a skill, and like any skill, empathy can be cultivated through intentional effort. As an executive coach and human behavior professor, I have an inside view into how great leaders and high performers practice empathy. Here are the similarities I've observed as they flex their feeling muscles. Number one, highly empathetic people are fully present with others. They're fully present. A highly empathetic person is that person that talks to you and you feel like it's just you and them. There's nothing else. There's no, there's no other agenda. There's no other time frame. There's no urgency. They are simply sitting down in space and gifting you with presence. And that's a powerful tool. It's not only a powerful tool in business, it's a powerful tool in all relations. It's a powerful tool with our children. It's a powerful tool in our families, in our friendships. Highly empathetic people give the gift of presence. Number two, they've mastered the art of active listening. I don't know about you, but you know that, that reality, I'm not just listening and staring, I'm actually engaged with you. Tell me more about that. What's that like for you? So what you're saying is, so you, what you mean by that is, I am being an active participant in the conversation when I am listening. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not an active participant when I'm talking. I'm an active participant when I'm listening. Highly empathetic people are active listeners. Number three, highly Empathetic people tune into nonverbal communication. Now, I want to stop here for just a second because uh, when I was reading this article, I was doing pretty well until this one. And so immediately, I don't know what you think. Highly empathetic people tune into nonverbal communication. And, of course, I'm highly empathetic. So then I believe I tune into people's nonverbal communications. And immediately as I started reading her explanation, I went, uh-oh. I use nonverbal communication cues to judge people's listening, not to evaluate my communicating. <laughs> so now that's gone. Can't do that anymore. Because what she says is, highly empathetic people take the verbal non the nonverbal cues and adjust their communication to fit the listener, not judge the listener on their ability to listen. Ha 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 hate this article because isn't that what we do I mean even if we're these people 
who are aware of this, and we're evaluating nonverbal cues, aren't we usually going, they're not even looking at me. They didn't even make eye contact. They didn't smile at me. They didn't nod. They didn't say one word. I got all the nonverbal cues. I don't care what you say. You weren't listening. What she says is, no, great empathetic leaders engage, and they watch the nonverbal cues. And if somebody's zoned out, it's their responsibility to pull them back in. I need to change my approach. It's clearly not working. The nonverbal cues are telling me this person is not engaged. They're not safe. They're not feeling the empathy. I am cultivating the skill of empathy, not evaluating the listening habits of others. Amen? All right. They get easier. Number four, they pause. Highly empathetic people know the value of silence. I don't need to rush to finish the conversation. I don't need to finish your phrases. I don't need to finish your words. I want you to have space. I want you to be able to talk. I really want to listen. Number five, they replace giving advice with asking good questions. They replace giving advice with asking good questions. How do you feel? What else is happening to you? How did that make you feel? What happened then? What was next? Asking good questions rather than giving advice is a habit of an empathetic person. Number six, they speak in terms of we, not me. We could, we ought, we need, we could together. Instead of you should, you need to, you ought to. I don't understand why you haven't. It's really not that complicated. Empathy draws people into a circle that makes them feel safe, warm, loved, accepted, celebrated, a part of something, a part of a team. And what is true in business is true in our families and in our homes. It's true when we communicate with our children. It's, it's true that we, we have goals that we will pursue together, that we can make happen together. Finally, number seven, they imagine others' points of view. Technically, we talk about that as perspective taking. That we just simply try this exercise. We try to project ourselves into the perspective of another person. Again, the battle that we fight at the cognitive level is I believe that my thinking is right. I believe my assessment is right. I believe how I see it is right. That's why I think it. If I thought it was wrong, I'd change it. But at the metacognitive level, I stop and go, but there's another perspective. And it could be equally valuable and true. In fact, it's really important that I create space and take on this ability to to take perspectives of others. Well, it it shouldn't surprise you then, as we think about Paul and his writing, particularly in Romans 12, what has happened is he's given us this theological construct, and he's come to the ethical application, the beginning of chapter 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. It's a reasonable act of spiritual worship. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it feels like now, as he transitions out of verse 3 into verse 4, he's going to now say, and here's the content. Have a renewed mind, but here's the content. I see six things present that I think he addresses now in verses 4 through 10. Let me read it to you, and then we'll highlight those. Verse 4, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the other members. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy. If it's prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, 
called a, it's called a pregnant pause. <laughs> then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. And honor one another above yourselves. So, so I think it's so powerful that immediately as he says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to prove God's will is good and perfect and pleasing will. He immediately launches into a relational conversation. And now this is how you treat each other. Have a renewed mind. This is how you treat each other. It, 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 you know, it sort of reaches its climactic moment. We're going to come back and keep going verse by verse. Not today. You'll be relieved. But, but later in the series. But he's going to reach his sort of climactic moment in verse 15. So mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. He's calling us into this relational place. I, I see six things that I think he's inviting us to. Number one, biblical empathy thinks interdependently. It thinks interdependently. For just as each of us has one body with many members and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body. So... so there's an understanding in Scripture, and Paul articulates this in multiple places, but he says it here. True empathetic thinking means we are interdependent. We need each other. We need each other. That God has fitted us together, which means, you know, and Paul's larger discussion in 1 Corinthians 12 about the body of Christ, he says, you know, we all are different parts of the body, and, you know, the eye can't despise the foot just because the eye's... You know, the foot's not the eye. The eye can't look at the foot and go, hey, the eye is way better. <laughs> can't do that because where would the body be without the foot? You know, what if all the body was was a bunch of eyes? That'd be like on Netflix. <laughs> so that reality of we think interdependently. And I don't know about you, but it seems we live in a culture that thinks very differently than that. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, which suggests a couple of things. One, that the highest value is to be homogenous. We should think the same, look the same, act the same. We should all come to believe the same things. Men and women should be homogenous. We're not homogenous. We're of equal worth and value. Okay, women are slightly more valuable, but... <laughs> I have four daughters and a wife, so... Yeah, see, even when I'm bragging on them, it doesn't seem like it works out. But we live in a culture that continues to cultivate this idea. It's about being homogenous. No, it isn't. It isn't. It's about interdependency. And so what we do in our culture is we tend to live codependently or independently. We tend to desperately need somebody to help take care of us, or we're going to live independent because the conflict's not worth it. That is not a life. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, which calls us into interdependency. I love it when a young couple comes in for premarital counseling and, you know, we're getting them ready for their wedding and they say, we haven't had a single argument. <laughs> well, buckle up. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! <laughs> I usually say to them, you know... You should go ahead and engage. Because it's easy to not have conflict out here. Woo! You hang around long enough together, you will grind one another's gears. Because you will get close, 
And when you get close, you'll find out we are not the same. <laughs> we are complementary, but we are not compatible. We, isn't it funny that human beings have an inherent sense that they are attracted to things they lack? Yes. You're not me. I love you. <laughs> You're so gifted in places that I'm not gifted. I'm so crazy about you. After a few years, what we find attractive is just annoying. Uh, it's a lot of truth on a Sunday morning, but it's true. And what we understand in our soul, what draws us to another person is they have strengths we don't have. They, that, that we need and understand that we could create a bond. We have strengths they don't have. This is an interdependent relationship. We can work well together. We will not see that. We can celebrate our differences. We're not going after being homogenous. There's tremendous strength. A former CEO of GM used to say, if we have a meeting and everybody agrees, I will immediately table the proposition. If there is no one speaking in opposition, we're missing something. You can't get 20 board members in a room and have them agree on anything. I mean, they might eventually agree on something, but you better have to have that part of the discussion that somebody says, well... Here's the truth. Here's how I feel. Here's what I think. Here's what's going on. I'm not sure I'll ever feel good about this. But listen, I know it's not my strength. I know that's your strength. And I'm really to defer what I think to what you think because this is kind of your space. And I respect that and I honor it. And we don't agree, but man, we can work together. And a biblical empathy says, look, we are interdependent on what everybody matters. Everybody in there, there, are, there, are, there is no one in the kingdom, no one in creation that is a disposable human being that doesn't have value to bring into our conversations. Number two, empathy thinks charismatically. Don't get scared. We have different gifts, verse 6, according to the grace given to each of us. The word in Greek for gift is charisma. Biblical empathy practices in the world of charisma. L listen, if I were to come to you and I were to say to you, what is your gift? What would you say? What is your... Oh, good. <laughs> but do you know? I mean, could you be that confident to say, this is my gift? Because <laughs> for a lot of us, we, we struggle to understand our own giftedness. And because we struggle to understand our own giftedness, it creates issues. When we don't understand our own giftedness, then it's difficult for us to really celebrate the giftedness in others. Sometimes we're like, well, they're so gifted, and I just know nothing. <laughs> or, I am so gifted. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with the peasants. <laughs> but in a biblical understanding of empathy, we understand that we practice the gifts and people have gifts. This is really important when you're, when you're working with your kids, you know, because as parents, I don't know if you know this, but your kids come equipped with gifts. You don't decide what their gifts are. You either decide to celebrate them or fight them. Amen. That was a very weak number of amens. But a biblical empathy traffics in and thinks charismatically there are gifts and they are worth celebrating and worth calling out and worth leaning into number three empathy thinks responsibly if your gift is prophesying then prophesy in accordance with your faith if it's serving then serve teaching then teach encourage then encourage giving give generously do it if it's to lead do it diligently if it's to show mercy do it cheerfully 
when we understand our gifts and we understand our interdependence, then the next thing is logical. We, take we are responsible to share our gifts with others. We take it seriously. It's not okay for me to spend my whole life perpetuating my own existence. It's not okay in my home. It's not okay in my marriage. It's not okay with my children. It's not okay in my friendships. And the truth is we are so busy in our culture and in our world. If I said to you, listen, we need to figure this out. We need to celebrate biblically our interdependence. We need to call out our giftedness. And then we need to take responsibility to practice these gifts in an interdependent way that really helps our family, our home, our, our, our community, our church. Most of us would go, I don't have time for that. Because I'm not living up there. I'm living down here. I'm living down here on the cognitive level. And this is what I do. How can I get through this day? How can I get everything done? How am I going to manage this? Do I have enough money? Can everything come together? I don't know what I need to do next. Where am I going next? That's why we say, okay, how is your doing? Insanity is doing the same things and expecting different results. What if we moved over here and we said, I'm going to practice some metacognitive values and virtues. I'm going to step back and create mindfulness because I need to be out of the cognitive flow and in the metacognitive flow. I need to stop analyzing and problem solving at least for a few minutes a day. I may have to jump back in, but I want to reorder kind of thinking and I need to practice empathy. When's the last time I said, out of the stream... I want to mindfully think of the people around me and how I might engage responsibly with the gifts I've been given in an interdependent way so that we might practice the very best of loving others as ourselves, even in the context of our own friendships and our own families and our own community of faith. Number four, empathy thinks sincerely. Love must be sincere. You can't just practice empathy and pretend to think and care about people. When I was in seminary, I was in a pastoral care class, and we were all talking about different styles of leadership and different styles of pastoral care and how it might work. When somebody raised their hand, one of the students raised their hand and said, uh, Professor, um, what if you really don't like people? <laughs> well, ministry might not be a good first choice. <laughs> uh, you know... And so, you know, we're really not talking about engaging in a program of empathy that, that causes you to appear to care about people. Real empathy creates a deep sense of sincerity. I, I don't know about you, but if, it is so easy in our culture to get caught up in this sort of hatefulness that goes on. Hating people. Hating types of people. Hating perspectives. Listen, there is something redemptive about loving people about actually caring about people, all people, liking them, having an optimistic, positive outlook, not saying negative things about humanity in general, <laughs> and specific people especially. <laughs> but we live in a culture that seems to celebrate this sort of win-lose mentality. My perspective is winning. My side is winning. My understanding is winning. My... Listen, nobody's winning in that argument. Nobody's winning. Humanity is losing. Culture is losing. Society is losing. Are there higher values and lesser values? Yes. Are some things worth more? Yes. But leadership is bringing people there. It's not eliminating the people who don't agree. It's bringing people. It's bringing the culture. It's bringing the relationships. It's bringing the friendships. And you and I, of all people, love must be sincere. We can't pretend to be empathetic with people and not care about them. 
Empathy is rooted in genuinely being loving. Number five, empathy thinks devotedly. Be devoted to one another in love, Paul says. We used to understand this. Relationships are hard. Getting along with people is difficult. Somewhere it became permissible to say, well, you're difficult to get along with, you're out. You're out. So, you remember, you know, we used to say things like this, through thick and thin. We're going to be friends through thick and thin. And when, that, you know, it's still today. If I do your wedding, you'll have to say these words. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. Because what we know when we stand up here and make this promise, and it's all wonderful and beautiful and everything looks great, and you haven't had a fight yet. <laughs> we know that, you need to be devoted to each other because it's going to be hard. And if you're going to get there, it's going to be because you keep coming back and going deeper and figuring it out because there's a devotion that creates depth in relationship. And you can go easy and shallow, but depth always comes with some kind of difficulty and struggle. And if it's going to go through difficulty and struggle, it means you have to be devoted to one another. Love must be sincere. Real empathy is devoted to people through the hard times, through the difficult times, through the times when it looks like I don't know what this person's coming from and I don't, and I, blah, blah. and listen, this applies to our children, by the way. Because yes. I don't know, I mean, I, I, I love the fairy tale that everything just seems to work, but the truth is kids need to be allowed to struggle as they struggle. <laughs> they, are, they are real human beings. And we're coming beside them in a sincere and devoted way, celebrating their giftedness, though it may be distinctly different than our own. I don't know about you, but I want my children to conform. <laughs> Can I get an amen? But I know that's not the best thing for them. Now, we have some non-negotiable conformity. <laughs> you understand? I mean, my kids are grown now, so I have nothing, really nothing at all left. <laughs> But in our raising years, there was a, this is a mandatory conformity. This is not where you get to express your giftedness and independence <laughs> over here. But here's what I find. If you've celebrated the giftedness and you've loved devotedly and sincerely, they understand that this is just a part of, the, this is just part of how it works. And we are to be devoted to stick in there, to keep believing, to keep going back and discovering giftedness and, and celebrating it and leaning into those realities. Number six, finally, empathy thinks humbly. It thinks humbly. It is really difficult to be empathetic with people that you see as below you. It's hard to be empathetic if you think you're smarter than they are, wiser than they are, deeper than they are, more faithful than they are, more spiritual than they are. That's cognitive thinking, that's analytics, that's metrics. I go to church every Sunday, I have this belief system, therefore I'm a deeper human, I have da 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 Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Instead, prefer others above yourself. It's a fairly strong biblical call that we're to be humble, humble yourself. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not think equality with God Something to be grasped, but emptied himself and became obedient. And so we're invited into this biblical model of empathy. And my question to you today then is this, in what ways are you practicing the skills? Because the question is not, how are you doing with empathy? The question is, how is your doing 
with empathy. And your worship folder are a list of practices for this week. And, and I want to say this. I hope at some point as we move through this series and we go through these practices, I hope at some point you read something on that piece of paper and you go, I don't know if I can do this. This is too weird for me. I pray that happens to you because I really want to push you beyond your comfort zone. Because after all, do you know all the practices and what might actually be meaningful to you yet? <laughs> this is like when you order, you know, that diet and it comes with that first box has all the sample food. That's what we're doing right now. You're just getting all the sample food. So don't quit the diet just because you chewed on something you didn't like. Amen? All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it that you get it. Richard Foster writes these words. I'm going to do my very best to end with them every single day of this series. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. Perhaps somewhere in the subterranean chambers of your life, you've heard the call to deeper, fuller living. You have become weary of frothy experiences and shallow teaching. Every now and then, you've caught glimpses, hints of something more than you have known. Inwardly, you long to launch out into the deep. The disciplines allow us to place ourselves before God so that He can transform us. The inner righteousness we seek is not something that's poured on our heads. God has ordained the disciplines of spiritual life as the means by which we place ourselves where He can bless us. In this regard, it would be proper to speak of the path of disciplined grace. It is grace because it is free. It is disciplined because there is something for us to do. God, would you help us? As we think together this morning about empathy and about what it means and what it looks like, we're inviting you, even in these moments, to allow us to make fresh commitments and to change our practices and to experiment in new ways of thinking that we might engage ourselves in a mindfulness that places us in space where your Holy Spirit can speak and lead that gets us out of that cognitive river that so quickly flows and sweeps us away in our daily activities and needs. We're asking and inviting you into this practice of empathy. How vital it would be to develop in each of us this inherent ability to see the perspective and feel the feelings and have understanding of those around us. Lord, we believe that it's what marked you so uniquely. And you've invited us to be Christ-like. To love God and love each other. And I believe in this, as we've shared these moments together, you've spoken. You've, you've put a little pinch and a poke and you've invited us to change. You've said this is, the, this is a, an important stop. It's an important thing. May we not let it pass. Even as our prayer counselors move around the room, maybe someone really needs to pray immediately. Perhaps for others it's a conversation, it's a journal entry, it's, it's some way to mark a response even as we sing the closing song together. But may we mark these moments. They are precious and they shape us and we invite you to lead. May each of us be committed to be people of great empathy. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, amen. amen. Will you stand as we respond? 
Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.